What a great chapter this is, John chapter 6. If you'll just look in your Bible, just open up to John 6, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, okay, just, just open it up. I'm going to give you a little bit of a picture of what's happening here. This is an entire chapter devoted to bread. <laughs> totally about bread. It begins with one of the greatest miracles of all times, and it was great. It's the, it's the feeding of the 5,000, recorded in all four Gospels. That's very unusual. All of the Gospel accounts have this story. And the reason that's true is because it's an astounding miracle for its vera, vera, you know, that it can be verified, you know? It's verifiable, or verifiable, how do you say that? <laughs> it can be verified. <laughs> In other words, 5,000 people can say it happened or it didn't happen, right? It's not just one person that was healed, but it's 5,000 people actually had the bread, had the loaves, in their hands, and maybe more than that, right, depending on how you count it. It's a huge, a huge miracle, and it's all about bread. They were so excited about Jesus after he did this that they wanted to make him king. Now, Jesus didn't want kingship like that, uh, did he? So he slipped away from them, and he made his way across to across the water, kind of catty-cornered across the water from the east side up to the top side where Capernaum was. And that was where he was staying, and did, out of which he did his ministry, and where he did most of his ministry up in that little area right up in there. And he made his way across, uh, but strangely enough, uh, when they went down to try to find him, they couldn't, they, they just didn't know what happened to him. It was confusing to them. And this is the story. We have the story in this little segment about the walking on the water that Jesus did. It's always associated with the feeding of the 5,000. Now, John mentions walking on the water, but he doesn't make much of it because it's not his point. The chapter's about bread. And John has an agenda. He, he mentions it. You can't leave that miracle out. But he really wants to talk about bread. Well, they all gather. They all get to the other side. Jesus is at Capernaum after he's walked on the water. And they get, they get to him, taking boats and walking around the, the land to get to Capernaum. And they find him and they said, how did you get here? And Jesus, of course, never answers their uh, questions, does he? He's just like that. They'll ask a question and he'll just answer something else, you know. And he said, you know, don't work for the food which perishes. They had made an arduous, they had done some work to try to get to this person who could feed them. Remember, food was a big deal back then. Eating your daily bread was a big deal back then. These were people who were in poverty. Ninety-something percent of the people were poverty-stricken. There were only a few rich people. And having bread every day was a very important thing. And after all, Moses fed people in the wilderness and and... Maybe this guy is like a vending machine or something. You know what I mean? He's going to keep on feeding us bread. Giving, and they want this bread, but they, they just are clueless about what Jesus Christ is talking about with the metaphor of bread. So everybody get this idea? Now, if you'll just look at your Bible, we'll pick up where uh, we left off in the reading just a second ago. They said in verse 34, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, notice the words, I am the bread of life. Couldn't be plainer than that, could it? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never 
thirst. Now, let me just tell you, in evangelism, talk about evangelism here in these three sessions in a way, and the power, the impact of the gospel. Um, I Man, uh, that is a great offer, isn't it? Just to say, look, if you would come to me, which is the same thing as saying in this text, it's the same thing as saying if you believe in me. Those two words are used interchangeably here. But if you come to me, you're not going to thirst. You're not going to be hungry. You're going to find satisfaction in your life. An amazing thing. And I think if you're a Christian, you will testify to this. You may uh, temporarily seek some other kind of satisfaction, but you're always coming back, aren't you? To finding, to, to reaffirming this idea that my life is full and complete and right. I mean, in, in coming back to Jesus, right? Walking with Jesus. And this is the truth for a Christian. So he's offering this right? I um, sometimes think when I'm telling people about Jesus Christ and hoping that they would be converted, if Jesus could just be here and, you know, he would just say the right things and, you know, it would just be amazing if he were right here. And yet look what Jesus Christ said. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. So <laughs> apparently, apparently that doesn't always work either, right? Because people, they were just as close as you were to Jesus. He was right there in the flesh, you know, just looking at Jesus, hearing his words. And yet he says, you don't believe. You're seeing me. You beheld me, but you don't believe. We sometimes call this the doctrine of inability. It has to do with the doctrine of depravity. Man just simply cannot love what he doesn't love. Something has to change in his heart for him to love Jesus Christ. Otherwise, he is just a natural rejecter of Christ. Some people ask me, Jim, don't you believe that mankind has the ability to resist the Lord? Absolutely. I believe every person resists the Lord. Every person does that. That's the doctrine of depravity, right? Every person does that. They can't make themselves love what they do not love. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ is saying. But his next line that he says is something like this. Here's what he means, I, I believe, in what he says. Let me tell you who will come to me. Let me tell you who will come to me. Look at it in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So think about what he said right here. It's, it's something we need to reaffirm over and over again. What he's saying by this little simple phrase is this. The Father has some in his heart from eternity past. There's some in his heart. And he has given those people that are in his heart to Jesus Christ, and those people will come to Christ. Isn't that what he says? All that the Father gives me will come or believe in me. They will come to me. So we know this is not everybody in the world. Are you tracking with me? We know it's not everybody in the world because not everybody in the world comes to Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, all that the Father gives me, Jesus said, will come to me. He'll come to me. What a great assurance as we do our evangelism. We talk to people about Jesus Christ. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me. There is an exact correspondence between the all subset that the Father's given and all the ones who and the ones who come. Everyone the Father's given to me will come to me. And he says, I will not drive them away. I will not cast them out. Right? So they come to me and they will be kept. In fact, he'll emphasize this even more. They will not be driven away if they come to me. What a great promise. So again, one-to-one correspondence. All the Father gives me. We sometimes call this the elect of God. All those elect ones that the Father has in his heart from eternity past will, want every one of them, come to Jesus. And everyone that comes to Jesus will not be driven away, will not be cast out. They will be kept. Then he says this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this, he says, is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose how many? Nothing. None. I lose none of them. I lose nothing of that set of people that the Father has given me. But raise it, that is, raise that that set of people up on the last day. So think about all of this correspondence going on here. The Father Father has some in his heart, right? The Father gives them to the Son. Hey, look, these are not... These are not my words. These are Jesus' words, right? He said, all of those who've been given to me, everyone that comes to me, and they will come to me, and all that come to me I won't drive out, and I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do as his will, and here's, here's his will, that of all that he's given me, I don't lose any one of them, but I raise every one of them up on the last day. Okay? One-to-one correspondence right through So that means that how many people that the Father had in his heart from eternity past will be raised up on the last day? How many? Exactly all of them. Exactly every one of them. Every one of them. Okay? For this is the will of my Father, he says in verse 40, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have, and here's where the emphasis ought to be, will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's a kind of a pastoral note there at the end to say, I will raise him up. I will raise him up on the last day. Okay? So, we have election, and then we have Christ dying, coming down to do the one thing. What is the thing he has to do to guarantee that those people be raised up on the last day? What does he have to do? What did Christ do when he came on mission to make sure everyone's raised up? He died for them, right? And he was raised again for them. So we have God's redemptive work in Christ. And then we have his keeping work as he preserves them, and then finally he raises them up on the last day, right? So everyone is going to be raised up on the last day that the Father has given. What a great assurance. So when we go out and we, uh, as we should, we live our lives before people and we talk about the things that are important and we care for them and we pray for them we do all, we we have a we're not just part of a uh, you know um, 
And we're part of something really huge going on here. We're part of an eternal salvation. We're part of something that began way, way back in eternity past, and it will continue way off into the future. And it is true that these people must believe. They must believe. But they will believe. They will hear and believe and come or believe in the Lord. (laughs) They will come to me. Because he said, how many? All that the fathers give me will come to me. So we go out really with a great deal of assurance in our evangelism. And I think sometimes if um, it, we're, not, we're not set back by the idea that these people are rejecting Christ, that people do reject Christ. We're not overly intimidated by that. They rejected Jesus, Right? But that the Lord overwhelms that rejection and resistance by, you know, his, I'll I'll read in a minute more about how he does that, but he overwhelms that resistance in such a way that they will believe in Jesus Christ and will be raised up in the last day. That's a, that helps us. You know, if a a person goes out and he joins an army and he's going to fight a battle, it really helps to know he's going to win. (laughs) It just really helps. There's going to be an army of people raised up in the last day that are going to be definitely related to our evangelism. But in the scope of things, God's eternal salvation has begun way, way before that little slice in time when we presented the gospel to somebody. It started way back there. And a lot has gone into it to secure the salvation of these people. It's a beautiful, beautiful thought. Okay? Now let's go down a little bit further. I want you to see what he's going to say just in verse 41 through 45. All right? Look at this carefully. Now the Jews were grumbling about him. I wonder why uh, John chose to use the word grumbling. What do you think? Well, remember, they've already brought up the idea of Moses in the wilderness and the manna feeding the people in the wilderness. And that word grumbling goes with that experience because <laughs> it's really in there in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers and so forth. It's really in, in there. They grumble. So they were grumbling about him. John chooses that specific word because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? And Jesus answered and he said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. This is, I want you to pay very close attention to this verse. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, let's really pay attention to these last few words here in verse 44 and 45. Notice the word in verse 44, no one. The, the two words, no one. And then notice in verse 45, everyone. Okay? 
No one can can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can. And then in verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone. It's a pretty tight case, isn't it? Um, So when the Lord talks here about drawing people to himself... I think you know this, you've been taught this before, surely, but the word is actually drags. But Martin Luther made sure we knew that this wasn't dragging like against the will of the person. Certainly it's not against the will. Nobody ever came to Christ against his will. He wants to come to Christ. Every man and every woman and every young person comes to Christ because he wants to come to Christ. Right? But everybody comes to Christ if they've been taught by the Father. So what is this idea of being taught by the Father? That's what I want us to just think about just for a moment. Um, I think we have to realize that the gospel is a message, and it's a liberating message. And there are truths here. Truths are being presented to people when we talk to them. That's we bring the gospel to them. We bring the good news of Jesus Christ. And so in a way, we are offering a kind of a call to them to respond and put their trust in Christ, right, to give allegiance to Christ. Uh, I think both things are there in that word believe, by the way. Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of like saying, I believe in Bernie Sanders, I don't believe in Bernie Sanders, but at any rate, suppose I said I believe in Bernie Sanders. What do I mean? What do I mean? There you go. That's right on. You nailed it. You believe in everything he tells you. You don't know much about his life probably, but you believe in his philosophy. Sometimes you just name somebody like Marx. That's a typical one. We name a name, and there's a whole philosophy behind that word, right, that name. And uh, so you believe, you say, I believe in Bernie Sanders. So if you don't live like what you believe, people have a right to look at you and say, well, you don't believe in Bernie Sanders. If you believe in Bernie Sanders, your life, you'd be doing this, right? So in a way, this is what it means to come to Christ. It means to come to a place where we believe we have allegiance to Christ. Now, this is in our hearts. We have allegiance. We've got a new allegiance to Christ. And we have confidence that He can do for us what He said He can do, what He said He will do, and He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We believe that. We believe His words. We're confident in things that He says. We believe what He promises for the future. We just have this confidence, this rest in what He is and what He is proposing and what, he's in, we're in, what He lays out for, for us. So when we present the gospel, yes, it's inherent within the gospel that we want people to believe this good news. Believe these set of truths. But what he's saying here is, it's not just your educating them about the gospel that does the job. But there's something more that's going on when the call of the woman or the man to believe in the Lord is being offered. Something more has to be happening. And that is, behind it all, the Father himself must be teaching that person, the truth, right? There's a supernatural work of the Father calling the person, right? And so that everyone who doesn't, not just everyone who hears the, the, the gospel preacher or the evangelist is going to come to Christ. Have you seen that happen in your life? You probably, 
you probably have a lot of testimonies of failure in that area. <laughs> what appears to be failure, you talk to people and nobody's coming to Christ. And uh, no, it's not just when we offer that kind of call like that. But, the, but look, when the Father is in the giving of the call, your call to that person to believe in Jesus Christ, is himself actually drawing that person to Christ. If he is actually teaching so that they hear him and they learn from him, well, then every one of those comes to Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Well, this is part of that revelation idea. And it's just a different way to talk about the same idea, that the Father is the one who has to reveal Jesus Christ. He's making us see and hear and understand in a compelling and irresistible way. Everyone, when the Father's involved like that, everyone who does that, has that experience, comes to, comes to Jesus. So what Jesus is doing, is, I mean, excuse me, what the Father is doing is he's overcoming the resistance that is natural to every man, every depraved man. He's making Christ appealing. He's, again, lifting the blinders off, helping people see the truth about Christ. That kind of teaching has guaranteed results. Again, it's not something you can necessarily produce. Uh, the Apostle Paul certainly had to say, I'm out there preaching the gospel, and lots of people reject my message, and they persecuted him and throw, throw, threw him in jail and so forth, right? That was his testimony. But to the called, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. That is, what call? The call of the Father, the drawing of the Father, to present Christ in such a way that he is irresistible. Because let me tell you, Jesus Christ is intrinsically irresistible, right? I mean, you could, if you could see him, he is hard to resist, right, in his beauty. If you could understand and comprehend his beauty, but you have blindness in front. If you're blind, you can put the most beautiful thing in the world right in front of you, and you're just not going to respond to it in the right way. But when the Lord does the work, when the Father does the work, He's drawing, excuse me for getting ahead of you here, but He's drawing, He's drawing those people to Jesus Christ. What a lovely and powerful thing. Now let's, let's end up just by going, and then we'll have some questions maybe tonight. But let's go down to chapter, in the end of the chapter, and see another great thing. It says in verse 60, after Jesus had several more words with them that are intriguing. Therefore, many of his disciples, and here he means any people who were at the moment tracking along and following him, not just the 12 disciples. Many of his, the crowd that was following him, these disciples, temporary disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. 
Now notice this. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his, this crowd of disciples, so-called disciples, withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away? You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the what? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's almost like, isn't it? It's almost like um, you couldn't beat these people away. One of the reasons I don't like to have a public altar call is because I have the conviction that you couldn't beat people away that God is actually teaching and bringing in. <laughs> you know, why should I put this extra little step in here that doesn't... You can't keep people that when the Lord is doing this... So you see, when the Lord, when the Father teaches, apparently, the teaching, what the Father shows people and what they hear from God is so powerful that it just, it just has overwhelmed all their resistance. And they can't really go any other place. It's just the answer. He is the answer. And they will supernaturally, in a way, just come to Christ. So you couldn't keep them really if the Lord is really revealing himself to them. Well, I'm saying all this just to be an encouragement to us. I think these things do encourage us, actually. And we are kind of people that think about these things, and that's a good thing. It's a, it's a side that a lot of people miss. But this side is really important because, frankly, uh, we struggle, don't we, with confidence sometimes as we go out and try to present present the things of God. If we know that the Father is teaching and the Father is drawing and He does it in such an irresistible way that people just have to say, where would I go? I mean, these words, I can't resist these words. These are the words of eternal life. And we've come to believe. And I, <laughs> I just can't make myself not believe. You know, I cannot bring myself to not believe in what I'm hearing. Let me just mention a couple of things that might be helpful to us, and then we'll see if anybody might have a question or two, okay, about what we said in these last couple of sessions. I think there's some implications here that I want to reinforce. Number one, God's elect will believe, but they must believe. God's elect will believe, they will come to me, but they must believe. In other words, it is right to, for our, our sort of slice of the whole eternal picture is to present a gospel and present a person in Christ who is to be believed. That's what we do in evangelism, okay? So go back with me. You've got election over here from eternity past, as far as you could think and beyond. He's got his elect, okay? Then you have the redemption of Christ. Jesus Christ was sent on mission, he said, to do the Father's will. 
to make sure that these people would be raised up. That means he came to die and to be raised again. Then the Holy Spirit, or the Lord, let's say the Father, reveals Christ to the person, right? There's revelation that takes place. These, the, the Father is teaching in a way that overcomes the resistance. This is a revelation that is deeper and different than just your speaking. It might be, that might be the wings in which it comes in a certain sense, but it's really the Father doing the speaking if it's going to have a different, make a difference. So there's a revelation, election, redemption, revelation, then there's conversion to Christ, right? That's when we are asking people to turn, to repent, and to believe in Christ, to, re- to repent from their sins and to believe in Christ. There's conversion. Then there's preservation. He keeps everyone that comes to him. And then finally, there is resurrection. And this then leads you to all the eternity future that's out there. So you've got salvation that goes way back, and it goes forever, and it goes way forward forever. So what part do you play in, in you know, evangelization? <laughs> okay. Well, you have a little slice in here where you are the instrument of God, where you're going to present the truths of God. And if God is willing it so and working in you, and we believe he often does, then he is going to be using your words, but he's going to be teaching that person himself. He's going to be really drawing that person to Jesus Christ through what you do. That's our evangelism. So we need to keep that in perspective. And I, I feel like sometimes we're, some people out there in the evangelical world think everything is right here. When we talk about, you know, everything is just this little slice right here. We've got to make that person be converted to Jesus Christ. And you fail to get the depth of the election and death for that person. He came to save his people from their sins, the application of that death in revealing Jesus Christ, get, causing them to believe to be overwhelmed, uh, overcome, uh, the resistance to be overcome, and then you know, on to, to eternity future. We have that little part, and the Father is using us to accomplish that goal. Let me tell you, if it were not so, there wouldn't be so many millions of people who are Christians. Started out with a very small group of people, and ordinary people like you and me have been sharing the story about Jesus Christ with other people, and God has chosen to use that. I don't think we can deny that. So keep your perspective. That's the the thing I really wanted to lay out before you tonight. Okay? Keep your perspective about the largeness of this whole salvation issue. Amen? All right. Uh, Do we have any questions about the earlier message or this this, uh, message here tonight, this brief teaching tonight? Do you have any questions or comments you'd like to make about any of this? I know I'm... I'm such a good teacher. I, uh, everything was so clear. Yeah. I know people use uh, different means of evangelism. Correct. Can you talk a little bit about presuppositional evangelism versus non-presuppositional evangelism? Mm-hmm. And just uh, talk about a little bit about that. How? Yeah. Well, yes, I could a little bit. Yeah, I think I could a little bit. And that's a good, actually a good question, um, but it probably is a very complex answer in a certain sense. In general, there are sort of two ways to think about apologetics or 
you know, answering the difficult questions that people have and helping them come across the line from our human side of it. And uh, one way is what we call evidentialism, and that is just sort of coming back to ground zero and rebuilding a case scientifically or whatever way we need to in order to present Christ. Um, I think that's the weaker way to do that. I'm, I'm sure, confident that the Lord has used that sometimes, and we all use evidences at different times. But I think rather it is, seems to be a more scriptural pattern that the Bible, that, that the Lord wants us to assume some facts about these people. And one of the facts is that they already believe in the existence of God. And instead of going back and sort of giving up that presupposition and saying, we're going to, okay, we'll go back with you, we'll walk back and we'll say, okay, let's, let's just go way back here and we'll just try to build a case out of nothing and, and help you try to understand that God exists. That's not really the way that we find this being done in the scriptures, I think. It's the presumption, or the, I would say it is a presumption, but it's a reality, we presume what is true, and that is that every man believes that God exists. And if they don't say they believe that, they are suppressing truth that they believe deep down inside of them because of their love for sin, really, just their lust, really. And that's what Romans 1 presents us, and I think it's a sound way to think about it. So that's a very simple answer. It's a great question, though. There are people who have a lot more depth than that. To, they can devote themselves to studies for years on this subject. But I think that's an important, simple, basic thing to say about presuppositionalism. Yes, yes. Um, just from the previous message, if you would speak to the children in terms of their... Mm-hmm. Well, not just what should they be looking for mm-hmm. like, in terms of their own heart is, you know, a Yeah, um, yeah. that's almost, I mean, it's really difficult to answer that, but I think it is a question that's in children who go to church. I do think they think about that a lot. My own kids did as well. I know from my standpoint, from the standpoint of a parent or a pastor or a friend of a child who talks to a child, we don't really have a right to say anything other than they must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They must repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true. That's, that's the way the Bible uses the mouthpiece of a human, just like I mentioned, that little slice that we have in there. We're presenting Christ, and we're challenging people to repent and believe, put their trust in Jesus Christ. We, um, I hesitate sometimes, and maybe Kirk can respond to this too, but I hesitate personally to put anything else in there, actually just to say, like, 
that they need to look for other than to repent and believe. So where I got into a dilemma with my own daughter, for instance, I would say she struggled. Well, my kids struggled a little bit. Am I a believer, right? Am I really a believer? Church kids have this harder. They, they wrestle with this idea. Am I really a believer? And what does it mean to believe and so forth? And um, I, I will say that God, one, we have to have a lot of confidence in God because you are in a place where it's very difficult to produce something you can't produce. So I'm going to say that you're going to have kind of a messy experience a little bit with this idea. You can't just neatly package this. Um, On the one hand, they must believe. I would tell my kids over and over again, you must believe in Jesus Christ. That's a reality. They must believe in Christ. I know, however, that they can't believe without revelation of God. Revelation of Christ. I know that. But my job is not to produce that. I can't produce that. All I can do is tell them what the Bible says is the call. I'll offer the call to Christ. So do you see the dilemma I'm in? The, the presenter is, is in as much dilemma as the young person is, as the child in it is in a sense. What I found helpful um, at different times, especially I think with my daughter, this was really helpful to her, was to say, you know, honey, I, there, you know, I, I want you to have a confidence that you are a true believer and that you really know Christ. So um, I'm going to say believe as much as you can believe. Trust in Christ as much as you can trust in Christ. Seek to love him as much as you can possibly love him. And as you see that developing, you will have a growing confidence in your relationship with Christ. Does that make sense? So I'm not in the business of putting all that together. That's the Lord's business. But my business is to ask and demand, or, you know, to challenge them to believe in Jesus Christ. So I'm, I, can't, I don't want to tell them something else. I want to tell them exactly what the Lord tells us. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe. And if they struggle with that, believe in as much as you can believe. Just believe as wholeheartedly as you can. Love Him as much as you possibly can. And then watch for the confidence and assurance and that, that comes with that. If you love Him, you can love Him more. If you know Him, you can know Him better. If you believe in Him, you can have more and more confidence in Him. And this really helped my daughter a lot. Uh, and she what, she, what happened to her, and it really happened to all my kids, is that as church kids who are around it all the time, um, they, they gradually came to a place where they had real confidence that they were trusting in the Lord. And so I'm hopeful that that's happened. It's happened many times with our kids in our church. We, we have seen this very sort of dilemma uh, addressed that way. And we don't know much we don't know much of another way to do that and still use the language of Scripture and, you know, kind of be the obedient uh, evangelizer that we're supposed to be. So I don't, I don't want to sit around and say, um, you, you must wait for the revelation of Christ at some point. Uh, even though I know that has to happen Right in a in a dramatic fashion, if God wishes to do it, but in a clear enough fashion that they can say, "I know Christ." Right. That's that's that's. It doesn't have to be dramatic in the sense that it's just exactly like an appearance of of Christ to Samuel or Saul. Those are 
recorded because they're so unusual, obviously. But many other people that Paul ministered to, for instance, had still a clear revelation of Christ so that they could say, I know him. See? So that's what I want for my daughter, at least, or my son. And uh, so I must challenge them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I must know some, I know what I'm looking for behind the scenes. I'm looking for the work of Christ in their life. Uh, You know, I'm looking for the Lord to do what he said tonight, uh, teach them himself, or to do what we talked about in that first lesson, which is another way to talk about it, you know, to make himself known to him in another way. Uh, I'm looking for that seeing and glory of Christ to be revealed to that person. Now, think about glory like this. What is the glory of the Lord? The glory of the Lord is that unparalleled beauty of Christ. It's the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ is, the, is that just spectacular beauty of Christ, compelling beauty of Christ. Uh, in his life, in his preexistence, in his life on the earth, in his miracle working, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and his, you know, in, in all of eternity, and his intercession for us, and so forth. If they begin to see that irresistible beauty of Christ, so they can't go any other place, I mean, it just seems to lock them in and they believe in those things, that in maybe a much calmer way than the dramatic way that Samuel experienced is nonetheless real, right? Uh, Man is a natural resistor. Man is naturally independent. God is overcoming something and making the words of Christ and the thoughts about Christ to be real and right for them in such a way that they can't deny them, okay? I think they would come to say, like Peter, uh, where would I go? I mean, I just believe. I can't make myself not believe (laughs) these things to be true. I would say persons who have that kind of experience are saying something about 